Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and as always, during the show we'll be joined by our former ITN journo-turned-pundit, Derek Dyson. Now last week we took a look at the women's game in Australia with Joey Lynch. This week, with a few rounds of the A-League men's competition under our belt, we'll talk to the old man, the aged chief football correspondent, Michael Lynch, to get his assessment on what's been going on in domestic football so far. We'll talk international football, Matildas and soccer central with Willem after that as we always do then as close observers will have noted the shaky foundations of the Chinese Super League have been exposed for some time they were never more apparent than in March this year when Jiangsu Sunying FC folded after winning the title the previous November now another titan of the local game Gonju Evergrande are in similar similar trouble tied into the property development Evergrande's financial problems. To unpack all of that, we'll talk to Hong Kong-based freelance journalist Michael Church, who has covered the Asian game for over 25 years, and we'll wrap it up with an extended stoppage time with Derek. But Edge, you're in Bangkok there. I'm really interested in talking about this uh, this Chinese story and how it all plays out and how it is playing out. Absolutely. And there's layers upon layers, isn't there, Rob? The Chinese Super League from the heights of 2016 to uh, you know, a very precarious position as a result of the pandemic and the property market uh, collapse of uh, Evergrande. Uh, but also the Chinese head coach, Lee T, who is an icon of Chinese football, uh, the former Everton player and uh, national team player, resigned during the week. Uh, he fell on his sword uh, as a result of their very poor uh, World Cup campaign. So we'll talk to Michael Church about all of that and more. But how about Sam Kerr? She scored a brace and was best of field in Chelsea Women's FA Cup final over Arsenal at Wembley. Um, and Rob, there's two other Australians. They're both men to claim FA Cup winners medals. Who are they? Okay, well, I'm going to uh, ask, answer that question without notice. I know Craig Johnston was one, but uh, Willem, you're still there. You, I guess, uh, follow this uh, as closely as anyone. Who's the other? Uh, I think it'll be uh, another man at your club, Rob Liverpool. Harry Cure would it have not have been in the, the Rafa Benitez era? Well, the answer's right there, Edge. Spot on there, absolutely. Harry Kuehl and Craig Johnson. So Sam Kerr well and truly joins illustrious company there. And her coach, Emma Hayes, said, so many wondered how Sam would cope in the English game. As far as I'm concerned, she's the best striker in the world. And Sam followed up with a shirt front during the week in the Women's Champions League, which is sure to be a viral hit. Enough said, Rob. Enough said, Michael, and very well said. So why don't we roll into the rest of the news with Willem. Take it away, my friend. Thank you, guys. Yeah, great to be back here for another week. There's always plenty to chat about, but I did have a think before coming on that it's not every week that we do get to speak about an Aussie scoring a, uh, a classic Wembley goal to immortalise herself in history. So we've got the audio here. Let's listen to Sam's goal against Arsenal now. Kerr, flag stays down. It's Sam Kerr. Can she find a finish? Oh, my word. It's wonderful. What a goal from Kerr. And the cup is Chelsea's now, surely. So there were just under 41,000 in the house to witness Chelsea lift what is what was their third FA Cup crown, adding it to those one in 2014, 2015, and 2017-18. And then in that, uh, the Juventus uh, clash in the UEFA Women's Champions League, she did do her best, Andrew Simons impersonation. The biggest story outside of Sam and Chelsea, of course, though, guys, I think this week is Barcelona. They've missed the Champions League knockout stage for the first time in 17 years after falling to Bayern Munich in their final group match. Barca entered the match day with a two-point lead over Benfica, but found themselves as good as gone at halftime, 2-0 down while the Portuguese side shot to a lead against Kiev. It means Xavi's side dropped to the Europa League to play one of that tier's group's runners-up with the draw to be held overnight on Monday. Rob, Spanish website AS have summed it up pretty profoundly, I think. They've called it Barcelona's resignation from the top table. Yeah, it seems to be. Uh, we've talked about Barcelona quite a lot in recent times. I know uh, Edge has got uh, pretty strong views on, on what's happening there, but uh, the uh, the fact that they, they can't get out of the group stages of the Champions League is, is an absolute nadir. I mean, Edge, you, what, do you, what do you think uh, of, of that result? Is it, the, is it the, the rock bottom before the rise or is there another bottom to find from here? Oh, no, there is another bottom to find for sure. Don't forget, you know, Barcelona with a salary cap imposed by the new venture capital owners of the entire La Liga, 
um, as a result of the you know the the financial impact of the pandemic means that Barcelona is just another Spanish club at the moment. Um, they've got massive problems with their stadium, uh, really significant structural issues. So, yeah, I'm predicting that um, they're they're in for a very rough ride in the short and near term, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they plummet down the La Liga table uh, even further than from where they are at the moment. To the UK, Baroness Louise Casey has released her findings into the Euro 2020 final, stating the appalling state of disorder led to a day of national shame. While acknowledging the collective failure of organisers in assessing the risk of the event, Casey was clear she believed primary wrongdoing lay with those who lost control of their own behaviour. Concerningly, it was also found a further 6,000 patrons had planned to enter the stadium once again gates opened post-match had England have won. Stewards testifying they felt relief when England lost. Lost. Rob, uh, this back to this story now, and maybe people out there are a little bit tired of it. Maybe listeners feel like we're tracking over old ground, and that is fair enough. But it can't be forgotten uh, about just because it was a little while ago, and the the abuse of patrons and people in power, uh, the strain on resources due to COVID nineteen, and the uh, abuse and advantage taken of uh, disabled people and disabled facilities uh, can't be forgotten about. And it's it's good that it's continued to be pursued in the right channels to this point. Oh, look, 100%. It can't be forgotten. And uh, look, I, I don't think our listeners would be tired of, of hearing the end game of this story. I mean, if this happened in a, an, an, a third world country, um, in, in parts of Asia, or in Africa, uh, they'd be held to pay. The English press would never hear the end of it. And so the very fact that it happened in the home of football uh, means that it, it needs to be uh, uh, not only thoroughly investigated, but thoroughly prosecuted. One of the points that I was pleased to see is that the police are still going frame by frame to find every single individual that they can possibly identify. I mean, as everyone, and I say it often, uh, knows that uh, I have a very personal connection through my 16-year-old son, Alexander, who who uh, lives his life in a wheelchair. Um, not only, only this afternoon, I was down at a special school watching a graduation ceremony with some of the most vulnerable children in, uh, in this country, and I'm just absolutely offended by the fact that these fools, hooligans, whatever that you want to call them, uh, had the, uh, the tenacity to, to do what they did. The bloke who stole the wheelchair from the father taking his son in, just a disgrace, throw him in the hooskow and throw away the key. So I'm, I'm more than happy for this to go on for as long as it takes to, to get to the bottom of this. It was preventable. Uh, it shouldn't have happened. It did. It now needs to be uh, sorted out to the very last detail. And, and the one thing that I, I would say to finish the point is that, uh, that the punishment for English football wasn't severe enough. No, well said. To uh, head over to China and just to flesh out uh, the big story of the week before we speak to Michael Church, who's going to give us uh, the real heavy detail on it. The Chinese government authorities have taken over the Evergrande Guangzhou Football Stadium, which was commissioned by a debt-ridden property developer, Evergrande. The proposed 100,000-seat stadium would have it firmly amongst the world's largest, but construction stalled three months ago due to Evergrande's liquidity crisis. Reuters have reported the government is looking to sell the stadium with its estimated construction cost of $1.7 billion US dollars and also as you mentioned Michael Coach Lee T sacked this week under uh, what you call a new wave of public pressure uh, the younger generation in China finding their voice uh, at the moment and they certainly weren't happy, weren't, uh, weren't happy with Lee who was of course a legend of their uh, their their one and only uh, run to the World Cup so uh, big big issues in Chinese football Michael and we'll get to Michael Church shortly certainly is and that Evergrande um, issue I mean just the stadium issue is one uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the significance of uh, the financial collapse of the world's largest uh, property developer. We're talking about uh, bond yields uh, being impacted for years to come and uh, and some very significant financial institutions will come under pressure. But uh, that stadium, Willem, was to host the opening and the opening match and also the final of the Asian Champions League in 2023. So uh, despite, um, despite all the uh, posturing of... Uh, President Z around the world at the moment. He's got some domestic issues that are going to be occupying a lot of his brain space, including uh, the egg on the face if they don't uh, make their commitments to the Asian Football Confederation around the 2023 Asian Cup. Yeah, and for anyone or any Australian football fans who've watched the Asian Champions League over the past 10 years and have seen the might of Guangzhou Evergrande, uh, they've made our A-League sides look pretty second-rate at points. I remember Alessandro Diamanti before he came here running rings around Melbourne victory, and they've always had big crowds. So to think that a club of that size is on the verge of collapse uh, indicates that there certainly are some deeply rooted issues. Let's head over to South America now to Sao Paulo. Uh, the Albert Einstein Hospital has stated Pele is in a stable condition and should be discharged within days following his latest round of treatment on a colon tumour. 
Pele had surgery to remove the tumour in September, but at the time, the hospital announced he'd require further chemotherapy. It's the latest in a list of health issues that have faced the 81-year-old over the past few years, Rob. So uh, somewhat concerning. It seems at this stage it's all under control, but we are all certainly pulling uh, for one of the great, perhaps the greatest, uh, or certainly top two legends of the game. Yeah, it sort of feels like it's on an inevitable trajectory, doesn't it? But it does, uh, yeah. the um, and the story, the parallel story of obviously of Maradona and the, and and what's been reported as the the poorly managed sort of uh, demise of, uh, of the great Argentinian um, is, is sort of a spectre over all of this. So, yeah, we're all thinking of Pelé, so many memories, and uh, well, look, hopefully he's getting the, the right kind of care that he needs, so that regardless of uh, of whether he has. Uh, a long time left on uh, on this mortal coil um, that he's uh, he's being uh, looked after as as well as possible. Back home now, Sydney FC's Ryan Grant has tested positive for COVID-19, ruling him out of playing and training for a fortnight from last Tuesday. Sydney confirmed Grant is double vaccinated and given teammates and staff were deemed only casual contacts, Wednesday's FFA Cup match went ahead. So hopefully uh, Ryan comes good. We're all thinking of him as well. He's been a, a traditional, uh, traditional, a, a magnificent uh, contributor uh, to Australian football and even the most hard-hearted anti-Sydney FC person would have to uh, admit that he's given a fair bit. But I suppose the important thing here outside of Ryan's health, Rob, is that at any point over the past 18 months, this would have been a massive story. It would have shut down the club, uh, matches postponed, the league probably would have had a, a bit of a hiatus. But uh, I suppose this speaks to the point we're at now in terms of vaccination and quick testing and bubble management that we can play on. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, we only need to know, and we'll talk about this uh, uh, later in the show, the Spurs example of, of, of had, having just enough players to play a game. So uh, it's it's the world we live in. And um, and uh, fortunately, we're, we're, uh, we're seeing, you know, systems manage um, these scenarios to the to the best of, uh, of what we can reasonably expect. And finally, staying with COVID-19, not such good news in Tottenham. The Europa Conference League clash with Rene has been postponed and Sunday's Premier League meeting with Brighton is in doubt. Antonio Conte didn't disclose whether the eight players and five staff concerned have tested positive to Omicron, but he did say the outbreak was serious and that he was very upset. Meanwhile, Leicester have travelled for their Europa League match against Napoli, despite seven players ruled out due to positive COVID-19 tests, Rob. Okay. All right. Well, good start, Michael. Um, you said tight. Another Michael is going to be joining us after the break. Michael Lynch from The Age. Uh, we're going to do a roundup of, of where he thinks, we think, the, the A-League is at in the early stages, both on the pitch, uh, in the stands, and uh, on your televisions. Stick around. Michael Lynch after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. As we said off the top of the show, last week we took a look at the women's game with the protege, young Joey Lynch. This week we talked to the master himself, the chief football correspondent of the age, good friend of ours, Michael Lynch. How are you? Um, good, thank you. Uh, I think I might be about to be used up as the master, though, but that's fair enough. Mate, Generational change is inevitable. He's outstanding, the great Joey, mate. And uh, But I think you've got a few... Uh, there's life in the old dog yet, mate. Um, oh, there's there's life, but, um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so, mate, the A-League, uh, it's a new era. Uh, we've uh, seen, uh, well, at least um, uh, the, uh, the first... Full season under the uh, the Australian Premier League, the clubs running the competition. We've got the Paramount Ten deal happening. Uh, we're seeing different assets roll out to, under the new A Leagues brand of men and women. Uh, what's your take on, in particular, the men's competition? The early rounds we're seeing so far. Um, yeah, sort of bit mixed, really. Uh, I mean, it's still highly compromised by COVID and travel restrictions, isn't it? I mean, Brisbane Raw to play virtually every game in Melbourne and uh, the Victorian teams seem to never leave their home state so I guess the onus is and Perth of course are just absolutely compromised by their schedule from the Hermit Kingdom and the rulers there who won't allow them to move in and out even if they're trebly vaxxed and um, COVID tested every 20 minutes I imagine they wouldn't allow them to come in and out. So uh, it, it, the fact that Perth is sitting six on the table with four points is testament, actually, to to them. I know they've played a game more than most, but, you know, the fact they're not marooned at the bottom is, is quite a good achievement. And I guess the way this draw is working, um, 
means that uh, with, with a lot of home games, the Victorian sides are going to have to take a lot of points early because they'll be on the road in the latter stages. So that's one observation, the kind of lopsidedness of it. The other one, you know, is it just me? Uh, or You know, I, I actually feel the crowds have been very poor and disappointing. Um, Melbourne Victory's first home game, essentially the first one at home for, what, a couple of years with proper full fans allowed, 13,500. I know they were rubbish last season and bottom of the league, but I, I thought they were this sort of super club who, um, you know, had this huge fan base, so I thought they'd, uh, they'd swarm back. So I, I felt that 13,500 wasn't that great. Western United in Melbourne, they ticked over 8,000 members. Is that a pass, Mark? Well, it depends on, I mean, are these people who are fully paid up season ticket holders for every home game? Or is it, you know, one game memberships, three game memberships, you know, a membership if you go and have a milkshake at McDonald's type, you know, and I'm not singling them out. Melbourne City have had a number of uh, creative ways of selling memberships over the past, as I suspect as every single A-League club. But, um, yeah, look, it's a good number. I think if Western United can ever build the stadium, which some people believe is now a figure of myth, but if that ever does come to fruition, they've got a chance because they've got a defined geographic area and, and a potential identity. I think Melbourne City's problem is a bit, they're a bit like, sort of like Monaco used to be, you know, in the Champions League, sort of, um, loads of money, not many fans, uh, not many people care. And I think City's big issue is going to have to be building their own stadium again down in Dandenong, Cranbourne. That's where they're kind of moving anyway. That's where they have moved to, to set their administrative and training base up. And if that's going to be what where their identity is, I think they can cement that. But I think they'll have to invest and build a stadium. And, uh, and, and, and I think that's probably the key for both these clubs, actually. What have you made of the new broadcasters, Channel 10 and Paramount Plus? Obviously, we know that these uh, technical things can take a while to bed in, but the Paramount streaming service really, particularly in the first week, has sort of taken us back to the dark ages a little bit. Uh, apparently, we're getting the ability to pause and rewind uh, live games this weekend. I mean, that was something that you could do 10 years ago with uh, your standard Foxtel and the remote control. Uh, and they might have bitten off a little bit more than they can chew regarding that double header as well with a few issues broadcasting the first one on 10 and then the second one on Paramount. So uh, how have you seen the opening few weeks with the new broadcasters? Uh, well, you're right. That week one game was um, a real problem. The Victory Western game, I actually covered that one and I had to rely, I couldn't get down to Geelong, so I had to rely on the stream to watch it and cover it. And I think it was about three or four minutes behind real time and there was one camera. Um, look, I'll say the positive things first. I think Simon Hill and Robbie Thompson, excellent really very good experienced broadcasters and I yep. think the addition of Teo Pelizari is a really good chance for a young up and comer to to get you know get get really into the mainstream Teo's done all the hard yards down here in Victoria and deserves a chance and we all know about Simon Robbie I've known for a very long time he's very experienced in France where he works so that's that's a big plus um not so great as you say was the opening weekend and the technical and teething hiccups. And I know they've had kind of five or six, four or five months to work on it. But, you know, I'm prepared to cut them a bit of slack because you can plan and plan and plan and do all the dress rehearsals you like. But until you're plunged into the real-time activity, it's, um, it's quite unpredictable. Um, less fantastic is the way in which they appear to be covering everything out of a studio in Sydney. I've been to most of the games in Melbourne. I wasn't there last night, but I've been to all the other games at Amy pretty much, and uh, I don't think I've seen any of their broadcasters or crew at all in Melbourne. They have Michael Zapone and Archie obviously on the sidelines, but they don't have the commentators down here, and I don't think they're travelling to any of the games. Now, is that appalling it's probably not appalling but it's not desirable is it you know the the fox uh 
the Fox broadcast, certainly in the early years, did push out all the stops. I remember, you know, going to away, I mean, <laughs> as did the age when they used to send me to all the victory away games. But I would remember going to uh, to matches uh, interstate and you'd see, you know, Simon Hill and Andy Harper, specialist comments men, and a whole raft of production crew and staff who travelled from Sydney to Perth or Cairns or wherever the games were. Um, and, and I think that that does two things. It it sort of cements the broadcasters with the clubs, the grounds, the personnel, and essentially into the fabric of the game because you build human relationships. And I think it gives you also the chance to, you know, watch. If, if you're just watching a screen, which everyone else is watching, you're not seeing what's going on off the ball, are you? You're not noticing those things that people at the ground notice. And when you're the broadcaster, you're expected to provide the kind of eyes and ears at the ground for the people who can't get to the ground. So that's that's two observations I'd make. But as I said, I'd, I'd, I'd cut them a bit of slack. The double header, I don't like that idea uh, at all um, on a Saturday night, the, these two games. But I'm incredibly sort of radical about this. I, I remember when I first came to Australia and the test match wouldn't be televised by Channel 9 in the city of origin until the last session after tea. And I, I sometimes wonder why on earth all these games, you know, if Melbourne City's games were not broadcast live in the city of origin, do you think they might get more people to the ground? Ditto Western United. I don't know. I presume they've made some kind of economic uh, calculation and decided that, What's really important is having them on telly and exposure for sponsors um, across Australia rather than getting a crowd at the ground. I, I, I don't like to think that it's an either-or uh, proposition, but I suspect there may be an element of that in it. <laughs> I want to know whether Lynchy thinks that uh, the much-heralded uh, Carla Robinson at Western Sydney will be the first coach to bite the bullet uh, in this season's uh, uh, coach lotto, um, do you do you do you smell a bit of blood in the water, Lynchy? Uh, well, I would think I, I thought before the season started that he was the one that was going to be under the most pressure and have to hit the ground running faster and uh, with more success than most. And, I, and nothing I've seen, obviously, from these early season results has changed it, including that FA uh, Cup uh, defeat the other night. So yeah, quite clearly he's um, he's under uh, an enormous amount of pressure. Um, you know, he sort of talked the talk uh, last year, didn't really deliver. I mean, they they, they are still fifth uh, fifth on the table, and they are unbeaten. You know, I know it's two draws and one win, but that that gives they're still unbeaten, and it's early early days. But they're only two points off top spot, so it is a bit too uh, early to be perhaps sharpening the knives, but that cup defeat certainly didn't help him, did it? Michael, uh, it uh, it may be harsh, but uh, but we'll find out football is a harsh environment, isn't it? And there's always a coach or two that goes in, in any season, mate. Thanks for joining oh, yeah. us. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Really... And, I, and I mean, I will say in this environment here, um, coaches are going to get marked hard because there's no penalty for failure. You're not, you know, you're not getting relegated or anything like that. So, um, so you know, if, if coaches have been given uh, an instruction that you've got to finish top four and it's non-negotiable, well, you know, they're going to bite the bullet. Some clubs may say, look, we want you to develop youth and kids and, and, and become a selling club and that's your mandate. Well, that's fine. You'd, you'd expect those coaches to be given a, a little bit more slack. I don't yeah, think West Sydney is one of those, though. Exactly. All right, Lucci. Well, look, thanks for joining us again, mate. Um, we always enjoy your frank views, uh, and uh, we'll we'll talk to you again uh, about uh, football, uh, whether it's A League or you know, the Socceroos in the not too far distant future. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Rob, and um, yeah, hope everyone enjoys themselves over the next uh, three or four weeks, Christmas and holiday period. You too, mate. Stay safe. All right. Cheers. Then. Bye. Michael Lynch from the AJK. Uh, Stick around. We're going to talk Socceroos and Matildas next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most...
Yes, this is Box to Box, and it was a great chat with Michael Lynch. Always is. He doesn't pull any punches, the great man. Uh, we're going to talk Socceroos and Matilda's. Uh, Willem's going to give us the roundup in a moment. But before we do, we're all shopping for Christmas presents right now. And let me tell you, as a football program, as we are, what better way to buy a gift for the football lover in your family than to get along to Chemist Warehouse right now and buy one of their new fragrances. Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Spurs, Chelsea. Look, if you follow the big clubs, you're going to get looked after, that's for sure. Now, packaged in reusable collector's tin, this fragrance is a fantastic way to support your favourite club and leave you smelling like a champion. You will find it at Chemist Warehouse right now. They are on... The, the ripping price of 19.99. So you can you can look after that person in your family that follows one of those big clubs in the Premier League. Get down to Chemist Warehouse now. 19.99. The EPL fragrances are available. So Ed Jock at you and uh, and Dell uh, a bottle of the Arsenal uh, soon. Willem uh, Manchester United and uh, and I'll swathe myself in uh, in what is the top shelf of the lot. It's obviously Liverpool fragrance. You should be paying a premium for that Liverpool fragrance, Rob. Oh, you do. Yeah, that's that's not on special. No. Of course, it's on special. Nineteen ninety nine at Chemist Warehouse. All right, you, Willem. You said the big clubs, Rob, but you left out Manchester United. Was that deliberate? Ah, did I? Well, there you go. Well, it was the de- you've spotted the deliberate mistake, mistake, Willem. Uh-huh. So you, you get a bottle of Manchester United for Christmas. Oh, great. Uh, good long Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army today. I think, guys, this time next year the football world will be a buzz with World Cup fever, and the Green and Gold Army is your ticket to be at the centre of it. Sign up to the mailing list today and make sure you're among the first to know when packages go on sale for Qatar 2022. They are, of course, oh, the mailing list is of course at ggatravel.com.au. Michael, let's start this week in Italy. It's not often we. Start start in Italy, and that's because Christian Volpato has become the first Australian man since Trent Sainsbury in 2017 to play football over there. He debuted for Roma off the bench in last weekend's loss to Inter. The 18-year-old Sydney sider passed through both the Sydney FC and Wanderers youth setups before heading to Roma, where he's now clearly of the liking of Jose Mourinho. He's managed by Francesco Totti. He was invited to train with the Oliveros prior to the Olympics, but couldn't do it as that was outside a FIFA window. Uh, Michael, you've been relatively certain or of the belief that we're going to miss out on Alexander Robinson. Uh, what is your inside mail on Christian? Uh, he's very much um, in the frame, uh, I understand, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the next uh, squad that will assemble for the January matches against Vietnam in Sydney and Oman in Muscat. Uh, that's what I have heard. Uh, bear in mind at the moment we do lack a bit of depth and uh, it would be good to see a bit, a little bit of fresh blood, even if he doesn't get an opportunity to play in one of those games. Um, as uh, Rob um, would know, um, I'm pretty strong on getting these young ones in and making sure we get them uh, five minutes somewhere to make sure that they get a cap and we tie them in for the future. Yep, cap tie them, absolutely. Let's go to Scotland where Tom Rogic has added another outrageous goal to his catalogue, walking the tight rope to produce something out of nothing against Dundee. The 3-0 win followed a 1-0 win over Hearts earlier in the week, meaning Celtic have made a good start to what's going to be a packed December, which will see them play nine games, including the League Cup final. Let's head to Asia. Mitch Langerak has been rewarded for another fine season with Nagoya Grampus, named in the J-League Team of the Season. Mitch played all 38 games and conceded just 30 goals while keeping a record 21 clean sheets, while also helping the Japanese uh, club to their first trophy in 10 years, uh, the Japanese League Cup. Uh, truly remarkable, Rob, those statistics just keep ticking up and up and up. Yeah, they do. Just uh, amazing numbers. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's the sort of stuff that uh, you just wonder whether it'll ever be uh, surpassed. Meanwhile, staying in Japan, Kevin Muscat's earned a contract extension with Yokohama F Marinos after he steered them to second place in the league this season. Uh, returning for another season, however, won't be John Hutchinson, who's left the club, Michael. Uh, his social media departure post was certainly gracious. Didn't certainly didn't seem like sour grapes, but it did seem to indicate that it wasn't John's decision. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to learn that. That came as a bit of a shock to me because I thought John, who was originally recruited by Ange Postacoglu, would have benefit greatly from the experience there so uh, we'd have to say that there's something behind the scenes uh, in relation to that that we don't know about but I'm disappointed for John because um, he's a great uh, um, Australian football stalwart and he's done very well. Remember he's worked at Seattle Sounders in the MLS as well and now in the J League so I was hoping that he would develop into a a good uh, professional coach at senior level at some point and maybe even back in Australia. 
Let's have, a, uh, let's have a look at the Matildas. We're nearing the end of the group stage of the Women's Champions League. With a match to play, Sam Kerr's Chelsea lead a tough group by three points. They could have turned up, sewn up top spot by now, but were held to a nil-all draw by Juventus. Tessa Tamplin also saw another full game for Servette FC in a 3-0 loss to Wolfsburg, while Ellie Carpenter at Lyon. And the Aussie trio at Arsenal have sewn up progression with two to spare. To the A-League women's back home, Emily Van Egmont has returned to the Newcastle Jets on a short-term deal in order to build up her minutes ahead of the Asian Cup. And Alex Chidiak has been loaned back home by her Japanese side, Jeff United Chiba. Uh, she's going to play with Melbourne Victory for the length of the season. So, Michael, only 22. Uh, she's played uh, with the Matildas before, and there was so much discussion about the age gap uh, between the incumbents and the, the couple of players who debuted in the recent friendlies against the USA. So you'd think uh, if Alex can put a, a full season or two together, uh, she's well and truly in that uh, the, the age gap that's missing there. Yeah, she went to Japan, which was uh, heralded uh, a move that was heralded at the time. However, she's not been able to get on the field. So I think that's a good move. Melbourne Victory need to reorganise their shape after uh, the tragic news that Kayla Morrison did her uh, ACL ligament uh, in the first half of the first game. So the ACL curse got Melbourne Victory again. They they, they had a, a, a defensive midfielder go down in round one of last year too. So Chidiak, I think, will slot into that defensive midfield role, probably allowing Amy Jackson to go back into the centre of defence for them. And also Kayla Morrison, we I, I, we know that she's an American, but she is uh, has married an Australian um, and uh, there was expectations that she might have got a... Um, her citizenship soon and there was a sneaky little uh, discussion point that she could have been slotted into that Matilda's defence or a, definitely a key candidate. So that is not only bad news for Melbourne Victory but potentially even worse for the Matildas. She'll be out for 12 months. Rob, let's look at the FFA Cup. Appia Leichhardt produced probably something that I uh, stirred on last week when I said there hadn't been any cup sets from the 12 uh, State League against uh, A-League men's lineup so far this season. They uh, have become the first club of that level to have defeated A-League men's opposition twice, uh, scoring uh, a couple of magnificent goals. Uh, Tyne and Diaz uh, was the scorer there uh, against Western Sydney Wanderers. And as we discussed with Lynchy, that's put plenty of uh, pressure on Carl Robinson. We are going to chat Chinese football after the break. Uh, stick around. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And we do say every week we cover football from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game. And uh, one part of the world we uh, we look at closely on a regular basis is Asian football, in particular on this occasion, is Chinese football. Now, close observers will have noted that the shaky foundations of the Chinese Super League have been exposed for some time. They were never more apparent than in March this year when Jiangsu Sunying FC folded after winning the title the previous November. Now another titan of the local game, Guangzhou Evergrande, are in similar trouble, tied into the property development, Evergrande's financial problems. So to unpack all of this, uh, we are joined by Hong Kong-based freelance journalist Michael Church, who's covered Asian football for over 25 years. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Rob. Nice to be here. So, Michael, that assessment off the top, uh, how does that align with your expert view of the Chinese Super League? Do we have... Uh, uh, concerns that, that it is uh, um, sustainable in its present format. We have seen leagues fold over the journey. Um, is, is that too strong a view or uh, are we further away than that? There are fundamental issues within Chinese football and that's, that's undeniable. Um, would we see the Chinese Super League fold? That's a question that I probably couldn't answer and I'm not sure anybody could answer that question at, at this moment, but certainly Many clubs within the setup are in severe financial difficulties. As you mentioned, Jiangsu, Jiangsu FC, who, who won the Chinese Super League last year for the first time, uh, they went under when the Suning Group pulled their financial backing out of the club. Um, that happened in the wake of a number of other clubs at lower levels in Chinese football also struggling and closing the doors, a lot of which didn't really get um, the international coverage that it, that it might have done, but it was symptomatic of a situation in China where really the professional game has grown and been uh, has grown in, in, a, in a way that is probably um, unrecognizable to, to many football fans around the world. The kind of money that's been going into clubs and been going into the pockets of players and coaches has has ultimately made it very difficult to sustain anyway. But once you add in 
um, the current global situation with COVID and how China and the Chinese authorities are choosing to deal with that. And then also once you factor in how Chinese authorities are looking at clamping down on particularly uh, the property development industry and the work that's being done in China by the government in relation to various aspects of the economy and the knock-on effect that that's having, particularly into football. It's obviously the, the, the area that we as football fans and those who have written about it and covered it <clears throat> extensively over the years have taken an interest in this because the game has grown, or certainly the Chinese Super League and the teams at the, the top end of the Chinese Super League grew very quickly and grew very fat on the cash that was being pumped into them by companies involved in property development. Guangzhou Evergrande is the obvious example. Um, you know, when, when, when Evergrande bought into the club back in 2010, they had been relegated in, into the second division um, due to their involvement in a max fixing scandal. The club, thems, or the, 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 the owners, the new owners, Evergrande, made it very clear what they wanted to do. And they wanted to use the club as a vehicle to promote themselves, but to also to, to, to try to revolutionize and to try to change Chinese football. And they spent huge sums of money. Um, they spent 10 million euros on signing Dario Conca, uh, to bring him from Brazil, where he was—he's Argentinian, but he's, he was—he was the uh, the player of the year in Brazil that season, and they brought him to China on extortionate wages. Um, and he and a number of other players, Zheng Zhe, uh, Gao Lin, who were who were mainstays of the China national team at the time, joined this second division club that had huge aspirations. And by the end of the 2010 season, they'd won the second division, and by the by the end of the 2011 season. They had won the Chinese Super League and they've now won eight Chinese Super League titles. They've twice won the Asian Champions League. Um, and it was a model that others sought to replicate. And so a number of other property developers um, who were wanting to use the game to further their own uh, their own aspirations off the pitch, whether it was to try to use football to leverage some political influence, knowing that <clears throat> the president of China, Xi Jinping, is a football fan and he has set out very clearly when he took over the presidency of china or the leadership of china that he wanted to see china become uh, a global power and a lot of this is, is, has been set in motion as a result of that he wants china to qualify for the world cup host the world cup and ultimately win the world cup um and so those seeking directly or indirectly to have influence uh in other areas in chinese life have put huge sums of money into trying to develop the Chinese Super League and to develop clubs to ultimately develop Chinese football. But in recent times, Xi and his government have decided that they want to, to cool the property market essentially in China. And, and, and you know, the, 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 when, when the leader of the country is, is saying that housing is not for investment, it's not for making money, it's for people to live in, then you know that that sector of the economy is going to be focused upon. And the the, the new regulations that have been brought in by his government have had an impact because when you look at, if you look at the 16 teams in the Chinese Super League, at least nine of them are majority owned by property developers. And if that is a part of the economy and that is a part of the business uh, infrastructure that's being squeezed by the government, then anything that is not um, sort of focused towards the core business is ultimately going to fall to the wayside or, or, or at least have its fund funding reduced and that's what's happening at so many clubs right across the league at the moment michael just for our australian listeners who might be not tuned into the uh the significance of this the high watermark for chinese super league football was probably in 2016 when there was just some absolutely eye-watering amounts mm. of money paid for european stars if we just sort of i'll just quickly list them um sure. effectively uh Jun Su Suning, who, who no longer exists, paid Chelsea £24 million for Amiras. Guangzhou Evergrande played Atletico Madrid £25 million for Jackson Martinez. Uh, then Jung Su Suning, not to be outdone, they paid Shaka Donetsk £35.5 million for Brazilian Alex Teixeira. Uh, and the numbers just kept going on throughout the course mm. of 2016. Um, Shanghai SIPG paid Zenit St. Petersburg £45 million for Hulk. And in mm. December, uh, Shanghai SIPG paid Chelsea £52 million for Oscar. All while Crosstown rivals 
Shanghai Greenland Shenhua were playing Carlos Tevez 600,000 pounds a week. So now if we fast forward to today, uh, the Chinese Football Association's put in a salary cap for foreigners that no foreigner could be paid more than 3 million pounds, uh, sorry, uh, 3 million euros uh, per season. Mm. So it's been a stratospheric crash and we still don't know when and if the Chinese Super League is going to start again anytime soon. The season is due to resume uh, this coming weekend uh, with the championship rounds, um, but it will have a very, very different complexion to it than it did even in August when it took the break to accommodate the national team playing in the World Cup qualifiers that have been going on uh, September, October, November. And of course, Australia played against uh, China and very comfortably beat a very poor China national team. Um, the, I mean, you're right. It's it's the 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 drop off has been quite marked. Um, and look, in in terms of in terms of this season, COVID has obviously played a, played a massive role in discouraging foreign players from either wanting to join Chinese clubs or those who are already signed to Chinese clubs. They who who wants to go back and play in a bubble, having already had to go through. Th- three or four weeks of quarantine, of very strict quarantining um, to, to come back into the country. It's not something that excites or entices very many people. But to go back to, to what happened in, in 2016, you're right. I mean, it was, it was the waves that were being created by Chinese clubs and the sums of money that they were prepared to pay were, were, were significant. Um, you know, when you have someone of the stature of Arsene Wenger coming out and, and, and basically saying that, you know, European football should be very worried about what's going on in China because ultimately, you know, they can they can outbid many of the clubs in 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 the oldest, you know, in in the games in the in the games oldest uh, setups. Um, there were a lot of people who were very worried. Um, the impact was significant, and I think it was that was the turning point for the chinese government and for the chinese football authorities because when you have stories coming out that cristiano ronaldo was being courted uh by clubs who are who would be prepared to pay 100 million euros and pay him 1 million euros a week and all sorts of crazy numbers that were being thrown around and of course a lot of this was being fed by agents who who had dollar signs in their eyes and who were very keen to to try to to play this up as much as possible because they maybe had contract negotiations ongoing for their own players for their clubs in Europe and so of course it was all about bargaining positions but what was happening was there were there was a lot of unease a lot of discomfort within the Chinese uh, authorities at this rampant sense of just throwing good money after bad you know I mean, bear in mind, you know, the, the the Chinese economy has grown a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. But, you know, these and, and, and there are, you know, the average man in the street is obviously better off now than than he probably has ever been in terms of money in his pocket. But the sums being talked about in this are just obscene money and that the impact that that would have in a country that is, let's not forget is a communist country and 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 the idea of having this rampant rampant capital capitalism going on uh in their own backyard was certainly something that wasn't particularly palatable but i think also what was very key in this was the the authorities want to see china become a global power within the game and they know they appreciated and realized that spending £600,000 a week or putting that kind of money into the bank account of Carlos Tevez was not going to grow Chinese football. Chinese football's issues have been for 20 years a fundamental lack of development. The last time a Chinese national team at youth level under 17 and under 20s the last time they qualified for a FIFA tournament, so and to do that you have to finish in the top three or four at the Asian Championships. The last time they played in, in one of those was in 2005. Now that's symptomatic of, of, of a situation where the development work is not being done with young players. Young players are not coming through. And ultimately for China to be successful on the Asian stage and then onto the global stage, 
it's the local players. You can talk about bringing in big stars. You can even talk about in the short term naturalizing players as has been done. Um, but ultimately, in a country of 1.4 billion people, you need to be working at grassroots level. You need to be opening academies. You need to be developing players and you need to be spending the money on that. And then when you invest there, you need to have the patience to allow that to come to fruition. And I've I've talked to a lot of a lot of big name foreign coaches who have worked in China. I've talked to the Felix Magaths, the, the Fabio Capellos, the Andre Villas Boas, uh, Gus Poyets. I've talked to all these guys, and and they all said every time you would talk to them, Fabio Cannavaro, any of these guys, the one word they all use without fail is the Chinese have to be patient. If China wants to be successful in global football, they cannot expect it to happen today. It is a long-term process and they need to be patient. And what has happened is the developers in particular, but not only the developers, I mean, Shanghai Port, as they are now called, Shanghai SIPG, they they are not backed by a developer, uh, by, by property developers. They, um, they're owned by the Shanghai International Port Group, who, for their own reasons, sought to spend huge sums of money on Hulk, latterly Oscar, Sven-Goran Eriksson, AVB was there as well, um, Marko Arnautovic, and of course, Aaron Moy is there at the moment. Um, so they've spent significant sums too for, for their own reasons. Um, but it's, it, you know, if, if money's not being put into the development of the local players, and you, again, you talk to coaches who have worked there and they will always say, often quietly, often privately, but they will say that the standard of the local players is just not good enough. Uh, Michael, it's a good segue into what's happening with the Chinese national team. Lee T, who has been the coach for this current campaign, he's a titan of Chinese football. He was in the heart of the mm. defence the last time they played at a World Cup. And he's obviously had a very good career with Everton. He's fallen on his sword. He's resigned in the past uh, sort of seven to ten days. And um, uh, current youth generations in China use Weibo quite effectively and um, mm. if you follow the sort of social movements in China um, the, the younger generation are finding a voice that previous generations have not and they were scathing of Li Ti you would have mm. thought that he holds a very respectful position in Chinese football they were scathing because they felt he he um, fell into the trap of of playing uh, the, the, the political card and sort of um, trying to satisfy the the the, um, the 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 officials and the government by playing the naturalized players which was really a um, a short-term strategy to try and get to the world cup and, mm. and the younger generation was scathing of the three brazilians who were naturalized and played in that team they all played against australia in the recent one one draw they had and and they really didn't want those players playing it was quite a controversial issue amongst Chinese football fans. Can you just reflect on the significance of that and how um, the Chinese Football Association is going to move forward from this point with naturalised players? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting and very divisive and emotional topic because understandably, China and the Chinese people are, are, are fiercely proud and fiercely nationalistic. And there is a very strong sense within the country of, well, you know, our national team should be made up of players from China. Uh, the naturalization process and, and, and as, as a topic was, was, was very controversial and certainly was something that, and, and he was not the only one, but when Marcello Lippi was in charge of the team, he was one of those behind the scenes who was pushing for it to happen. And there, there were reports, whether they're true or not, I don't know, but there were reports certainly when he quit after the Asian Cup and then was enticed back to take the national team again. One of his one of his demands was that that uh, that the naturalization process be accelerated because ultimately he felt he didn't have a strong enough squad. And certainly if you look at the squad that he took to the Asian Cup in twenty nineteen and they, they got knocked out in the quarterfinals by by Iran and they were they were tame. They were they were they were comfortably beaten by the Iranians that day. They had the oldest squad at the tournament by quite a considerable margin, and they've sought they've sought to naturalise these players. And again, the driving force behind much of that has been the likes of Evergrande, uh, Sinobu, who, who who are the majority shareholders at uh, at, at Beijing Guan, and those two clubs in particular have the naturalised or the the ones the, the players who have Chinese bloodlines like uh, Nico Yanaris, um, 
who was who was uh, born in Europe but has Chinese heritage. T.S. Browning, who's at Guangzhou FC, uh, who was previously at Everton, and again he has uh, a grandparent who is Chinese, and so he has he has been brought into the setup. There are a number of others. Um, it it hasn't it hasn't worked because ultimately they've done it because it's such a sensitive issue they've only done it with a small number of players and the small number of players that they've done it with and i'm speaking particularly about the brazilian players the likes of alan carvalho elkerson um aloisio aloisio actually funnily enough Lita got a lot of criticism for for taking for taking aloisio out of uh, one of the recent games where he where he was actually the best player on the pitch, I think it was the game against um, I think it was a game against Vietnam. Um, sorry, oh man, and uh, it's 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 such a it's such an emotive issue. The Chinese fans, of course, want a Chinese team. They've naturalised these players, but ultimately they're naturalising players who have been playing in the Chinese Super League for the last four, five, six seasons, and ultimately. When when they when they moved to China when they were playing there at first they probably were at a higher level than they are now but unfortunately the standard in the Chinese Super League itself has dropped quite markedly um, and as a result of that they're probably not playing at the standard that they were playing at whenever they moved there to begin with uh, they haven't really improved the national team much but ultimately you know we're talking about four or five six players in a squad for the national team of anywhere between 25 and 30. Um, they're just not surrounded by enough talent for Li Tie or Li Xiaoping, who's, who's, who's taken over the national team, or anybody, to be to be honest. I mean, Marcello Lippi really struggled with this squad. And Lippi, Lippi quit um, midway through the second round of Asian World Cup qualifying after they, after they lost against Syria in, in the UAE in November of 2019. Um, I just think, you know, unless you're going to go and naturalize 150, you know, foreigners, the Chinese just do not have a deep enough pool of players to be successful at any level. So I think the, the expectations of the online fans in China are, are unrealistic. They're always unrealistic. I mean, the Chinese fans are arguably the most demanding fans in world football. They really have understandably an expectation that you know, we are from a country that has the world's largest population. We have it. We we are from a country that is now the world's second largest economy. We come from a country that has achieved so much in a very short period of time. You know, if you'd gone to China 25 years ago, it was a very different place to what it is today in terms of infrastructure and development and economy. And so there's an expectation that we've succeeded in all of these other areas in our day-to-day -day life why can't we do it in football we're we're successful when we go to the olympic games but there's a there's there's a lack of understanding of what it takes to be able to develop a successful football team and i go back to what i said earlier uh, the, the the advice that all these big name experienced foreign coaches always always gave was you need to be patient and there's a lack of patience in china well michael it's a, a thorough and totally expert, obviously, analysis of the scenario in China right now. Uh, we've uh, extended our conversation a little longer than we normally would with most of our chats, but I don't even think we've scratched the surface of it. We might uh, have to revisit this with you in the next uh, month or two as, uh, as the story unfolds and, and find out a little more because uh, the power of Chinese football, uh, regardless of its present state, uh, is inevitably going to impact football for the long term. So uh, it'll be fascinating to watch and, uh, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to chatting to you again in the, in the near future to, uh, to find out what the next chapter is. Excellent, Rob. I'd be delighted to do it anytime you want. Lovely. Michael Church has covered Asian football for over 25 years, based in Hong Kong. And uh, as you've heard, he is an absolute expert on the subject. We'll talk to him again soon. Okay, stick around. There's plenty more to talk about. We're going to wrap it up in stoppage time with Derek and the boys. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal. Yes, this is Box to Box. Been a great show this week. Uh, we don't normally dive as deeply as we did into one particular story, but Michael Church, an absolute expert, and we'll have him on again real soon. But this is stoppage time. The fourth official has given as much time as we like. Derek, for the first time this week, you're uh, on the line. How are you, mate? Yes, evening, gents. How are you going? 
Yeah, very well, mate. Very well. As uh, we uh, we head into the the festive season, it's a a busy, busy time in football. Champions League this week. Uh, um, what did you make of it all? Well, we spoke last time about the Champions League, about the fact that most of the groups were done and dusted. But actually, once these games actually unfurled, although there were there was a couple of non-events in the groups, there certainly was a little bit of drama that we can unpack. I think probably the the biggest one overnight is Barcelona now face the ignominy of playing Europa League football, uh, something that they're not used to ever doing. Barcelona always qualify for the latter stages of the Champions League, but they were put to the sword by Bayern, who, of course, finished finish, uh, group winners in spectacular fashion. And Benfica getting a win over Kiev meant that Barcelona uh, finished third and they uh, and they crash out of uh, the Champions League at, at this early stage. Um, just looking through some of the the other big stories from the uh, from from the night, uh, Chelsea failed to top their group somehow. I have no idea how they managed to do this. They were so superior to uh, Juventus a few weeks ago. Uh, Juve managed to scrape by against Malmo in a one nil victory, but Chelsea. Didn't play very well at Iway in Zenit, uh, St. Petersburg. We're 3-2 up with uh, a couple of minutes to go and deep into uh, into injury time. A fantastic goal from uh, uh, Osdorov uh, on the half volley at the edge of the box. Made it 3 all and Chelsea now second. Uh, they will play a group winner, whether that matters or not. I mean, you can debate that amongst yourselves, but Chelsea certainly... Um, are used to used to winning their groups. Uh, United are already through, of course. They drew with young boys. Nice goal from Mason Greenwood. Villarreal Real also managed to get through in that tight group that Edge and I spoke about a few weeks ago. Lille thrashed Wolfsburg to top the group, and Salzburg shocked Seville. You would have fancied um, Seville that there is something uh, in the water in Salzburg. They're a bit of a production production line of great footballers, and and they will get into the into the last 16, uh, as will Real Madrid, who topped the group after thrashing into Milan uh, a couple of nights ago, uh, just to, uh, to, to to get them, you know, really motoring into that last stage. We'll obviously mention Liverpool, Rob, they were the first uh, English side to win all six games of the Champions League knockout stages. First time they played in Milan, incidentally, against uh, AC, I can't believe that, but in what was a so-called group of death. And with eight changes, uh, Liverpool uh, triumphed and then a goal for Salah there, who just goes from strength to strength. And probably the most hilarious game of this uh, group stages was uh, Atletico playing their old nemesis, Porto. Quite funny watching Pepe, just for a change, trying to be the peacemaker amongst the uh, the melee there. Uh, not usually the guy who's trying to calm everyone down. Three red cards, but Atletico, in typical Atletico style, crushed their way through uh, in Group B, and, and they will also be joined by uh, Manchester City, PSG, Ajax, uh, who, again, Sebastian Haller, who failed at West Ham. We spoke about him in a previous podcast. He's now scored in all six games in this Champions League group stages. They're 18 out of 18 now. Ajax and Sporting will join them too. So we know, Rob, who, who everyone is going into the Champions League. But um, the biggest story, I think, is uh, Barcelona dropping into the Europa League. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. And look, I'm not going to carry on and gloat too much. Obviously, very satisfied as a Liverpool supporter. uh, And I note uh, that you acknowledged uh, um, their wonderful run. But uh, yeah, look, uh, we edge, I mean, we did discuss it briefly earlier on Barcelona uh, falling out of the Champions League. But uh, what's your your take out of all of uh, those results and and outcomes? Um, Any highlights, surprises for you? Well, obviously the big the big ones, Barcelona, which we've spoken about previously, but the rest are, are very interesting. I think uh, PSG, um, we just don't know whether they've got the uh, the ability to carry through in the round of sixteen. I'm, that's that's probably going to be a key focus for me, and and obviously um, um, Chelsea dropping to second in the table in their group means they've probably got a harder road in the round of sixteen. Derek, I think that was an interesting um, take out because they did, didn't really take the third, the final game too seriously, did they? No, there was a lot of a lot of teams with um, uh, were sort of not playing their strongest 11s. I mean, Liverpool certainly didn't. Uh, Chelsea will take some heart from the game. I mean, Lukaku got back on the score sheet. That's good. He's not scored for some time. Timo Werner scored too. I mean, that's um, 
that is rarefied air for, uh, for, 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 for Timo Werner and, uh, glad, glad, glad to see him back on the score sheet. But yeah, as you said, that they're, they're now going to have to play an Ajax, so they're going to have to play Liverpool. And you know that last sixteen, you really want that to be another kind of another group game. Really, you just want to get through that, and then where you know the business end is, uh, you know, quarterfinals onwards. But they've they've made it um, slightly difficult for themselves. Barcelona, of course, will be joined in the uh, in the Europa League by by Dortmund. They they thrashed. Um, you know uh, they they went right through in their game. At Harland came on and scored five five goals, um, but they that that was not enough. They finished third in their group, and it's not been a good week for Dor- Dortmund because in uh, Der Klassiker, as they call it in uh, in Germany, they also lost to Bayern three uh, two in Dortmund, and Dortmund probably would have fancied their chances. It was a it was a fabulous game, end to end stuff. Um, a late penalty that was converted by. Uh, you know, the insatiable Robert Lewandowski. And the penalty was actually a VAR decision. Um, and, it, you know, on reflection, it, it probably was a penalty. Uh, Mads Hummels was not under a great deal of pressure. And, uh, you know, in the penalty box corner, or a ball came in. He kind of stuck his arm out. Ball hit his arm. I think the referee had no choice. But unfortunately, uh, uh, one of... Um, Dortmund's players, Jude Bellingham, decided that he needed to blame it on the referee. This sort of insinuating that, you know, as a known match fixer and uh, Felix Zouea, well, he was embroiled in a match fixing scandal in 2005. Um, and uh, Bellingham made reference to that in his uh, post-match press conference, the uh, the 18-year-old. And unfortunately for Bellingham, even though he's not technically correct for pointing out a fact, he's... Uh, He's banned for unsportsmanlike behaviour. He's got a forty thousand uh, euro fine, and already the newspapers in the UK are drawing a pretty long bow here, saying that, that Jude Bellingham's going to be unhappy and that, and that he must be uh, re- wanting to return home to England and potentially to to a club like Liverpool. Do you, do you uh, take Jude Bellingham, Rob? I think we certainly would. Um, he might want to watch his tongue uh, after making uh, that kind of remark. You don't go far in uh, this game when you uh, have a crack at, uh, at referees, but uh, 100%. He's a young bloke, though. He's got uh, a lot of time ahead of him. If that's the worst thing he ever does, uh, then uh, you know I think uh, it'll be uh, it'll be sort of sponged from his record in the, in the eyes of time. Speaking of young blokes, just quickly, I forgot to, I forgot to say this when we were talking about Manchester United, but um, Robbie Savage's son, Charlie, made it onto the bench for Manchester United against young boys. And uh, when it was announced before the game, Robbie Savage, God love him, actually burst into tears on the uh, on the BT coverage as a, as a proud father should. Uh, Robbie, of course, was in that famous class of uh, class of 94, I think they call it, um, with Beckham and, and, and the Nevilles and Skulls and but didn't make it at Manchester United, ended up having a great, you know, a, a decent career. Um, won, an, won a cup, of course. Um uh, for for Robbie, but you know he obviously proud as punch of his son, uh, who 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 got into got that Manchester United shirt uh, on for the first time. Just back on um, Bundesliga quickly, gents. One to watch is uh, FC Freiburg, who beat Gladbach six nil away uh, in in Bundesliga. That's their fourth in Bundesliga. I've actually been to Freiburg. I uh, uh, used to live uh, in the same building as a German girl back in London and she was from Freiburg and we ended up going to a Bundesliga game and it's just an amazing place, just a very quaint stadium right on the edge of the Black Forest, literally the forest is right there behind one of the goals. Um, uh, it was a very, v- a very tight kind of ground, just really, really exciting. Uh, but they were you know, fighting relegation every season and they're fourth in Bundesliga, beating Borussia Mönchengladbach Black glad back away is just a, an extraordinary thing. So you know, while Bayern get, are flying ahead at uh, top of Bundesliga as usual, let's keep an eye on Freiburg for the rest of the season because that that you know, like Leicester or someone else, that could be one of the true great stories. Um, Rob, I wonder if I could talk about um, something that's been I was going just on. Hoping you would talk about another romantic weekend you had with a German girl, Derek. <laughs> oh well, you know, maybe the next time. It was it wasn't that romantic. It was a very platonic relationship. Um, <laughs> Both very keen on football, and uh, yeah, she took me to see a hometown club, and 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 yes, uh, I, you know, I have been to see a Bundesliga game, and, and, and I, I, that's a bit of a feather feather in my cap. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the Premier League recommendations or the the, the government's fan led review. Uh, would love to get Rob's uh, well and Anage's view on this. Uh, 
this has all come about because of the end of Project Big Picture, uh, the European Super League. Uh, there's a, a government MP is leading this review um, into uh, changes to the structure of English football and particularly around the Premier League. Um, it's going to cost about five five million pounds to set this up, and it could could be in place as early as January next year. And um, some of the uh, some of the uh, recommendations include a, a compulsory levy on all football transfers, a percentage that goes back to uh, lower league clubs and help support the game down there. A golden transfer tax, uh, Derek, and I think it's a good idea, one that should be really fleshed out because it provides, instead of that flat payment that the Premier League provides to the FA, it can uh, obviously um, scale up subject to the the size of these transfers. It's something worth a, a due consideration, I would think. I would think so. Christian Perslow, of course, one of the top men at Aston Villa, called it Maoist and risk killing the golden goose. But we can expect that the um, the Premier League clubs, are, you know, on force are going to going to push back on that. There's there's proposals for more more fan representation on boards, shadow boards, and fans being consulted on key decisions. Limits to the amount of money that owners can put into a club. I'm sure that. Uh, Newcastle and, and Manchester City and, and the like won't won't like that. A reappraisal of parachute payments. I think, you know, although they were kind of meant to be a good thing in terms of helping clubs drop out of the Premier League and kind of land safely, that it, they, they have sort of created a disparity, particularly with those yo-yo clubs. That well, Derek, kinda... there was 47 recommendations. Two stood yeah. out to me. One was that supporter representatives getting a golden share to veto yeah. any wacky ideas by overseeing owners. Yeah. But Julie, the biggest one, the on. biggest one out of all of the transfer tax, regulation of financial stability and sustainability, independent regulator, you know, government taking on a central role in owners fit and proper person. But the biggest one of all was letting the fans drink beer on the terraces. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the days back at Arsenal Edge where you used to have to run out as soon as the referee blew the halftime whistle. Luckily, if you could try and get to the front of the queue, and then back then it was Foster's at Arsenal, and then you'd have to try and drink a pint of Foster's in 10 minutes as fast as you can. You'd get a headache. You'd start feeling a bit woozy, (laughs) and then you'd have to like run back up the stairs, and by that time, the second half had already started. You might have missed a goal, so... A little bit more leisurely um, way of drinking alcohol at the game could be just what we need. Yes, gentlemen, uh, on that note, uh, rather civilised uh, uh, libations of the modern era is something that uh, we can all look forward to. I remember that at Stanford Bridge watching the gang uh, brace out at halftime only in April back in 2018. All right, boys, we've got to wrap it up there. Uh, we have got a big week next week as we lead into Christmas the last couple of weeks. Uh, Derek, uh, thank you for your well, your late contribution to Stoppage Time. Yeah, made it, Jan Sutter. A lot of trouble in the traffic here in Melbourne, but uh, got here on time. No more trouble than a tuk-tuk in Bangkok, Edge. That's right. Uh, they break down from time to time, and you've got to breathe in some of the uh, wonderful diesel exhaust from those <laughs> red buses that were made in 1932. Good on you. Uh, Willem, thank you. Good on you, guys. Thanks very much. Okay, please subscribe to box to box wherever you can to get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. And remember, join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.